If you grew up on a farm like I did, there were probably lots of familiar routines. Daily routines of morning and evening chores, annual routines of the various, various planting and harvesting seasons, and weekly routines. They were so predictable that they were nearly sacred rituals, especially on Saturday. Watching Hockey Night in Canada on our small screen large box black and white TV. It was a real rite of passage when we were deemed old enough to stay up for the second and then the third periods. Saturday night was also known as bath night and shoe night. My brother and I would polish our own shoes and take turns polishing Dad's. Mum's shoes were patent leather and didn't need polishing. I thought that was a great invention and it should be more widely used. Those traditions of bathing, hair washing, shoe cleaning, ironing of dresses and shirts were all in aid of looking perfect when we got to church the next morning. My mom would wrestle my hair into a French braid, pulling every hank of hair so tight that it made my eyes water, but with a tidy result that would stay tidy. Because looking perfect for church was very important. Everyone always showed up in their best bib and tucker. Had I been ten years older, though, I might have picked up on a disconnect between the outer appearance and the inner disposition. The women with their hair softly curled and wearing pastel dresses made of delicate fabric may have been anything but soft and light on the inside. As they looked across the congregation, seeing this one who had offended them and that one who had disappointed them, their thoughts were more like daggers and darkness than softness and light. I've been told that one of the best measures of a, the culture of an organization is to notice what gets rewarded around here. There may have been a plaque on the wall that said, Love one another, but the church of my childhood was a place where what was rewarded was pretty clothes, neat hairstyles, and well-shined shoes. The surface was what was important, no matter what might have been simmering underneath. Today we're looking at a story that contrasts a fixation on the surface of things with an appreciation of the substance. It's the last message in our series on, on more, and today we have more substance. Or maybe today's message could be part of a mini-series with my last two talks that might be called Women on the Margins. We examined the story of Mary called Magdalene, Mary the Tower. Two weeks ago, it was the woman at the well, and today we'll look at an unnamed Greek woman who encounters Jesus all of them women on the margins. Or maybe today is the start of a new series called Embarrassing Things That Jesus Supposedly Said. Can you figure out which story it is? Here's how Mark records the episode in his biography of Jesus. From there, Jesus set out for the vicinity of Tyre. He entered a house there where he didn't think he would be found, but he couldn't escape notice. He was barely inside when a woman who had a disturbed daughter heard where he was. She came and knelt at his feet, begging for help. The woman was Greek, 
Syrophoenician by birth. She asked him to cure her daughter. He said, stand in line and take your turn. The children get fed first. If there's any leftover, the dogs get it. She said, of course, master, but don't dogs under the table get scraps dropped by the children? Jesus was impressed. You're right. On your way, your daughter is no longer disturbed. The demonic affliction is gone. She went home and found her daughter relaxed on the bed, the torment gone for good. It's an unusual little story, and we might as well start with the worst part first. Did Jesus just call that poor woman a dog? Really? What's going on? Well, actually, part of our problem is something we usually don't even notice that we are doing when we read our Bibles. Hearing the story through the lens of our contemporary culture. Our culture, or more specifically, the way we see the world through the lens of our culture, is transparent to us. We don't see it, but it affects what we see. It's like a helpful set of glasses that we use to understand and interpret things in the culture around us. But they are glasses that may not serve us nearly as well when we are in a very different context. Just because the perfectly good English word that means a female dog has come to be used exclusively as a nasty slur against women isn't Jesus' fault and wasn't in his mind when he interacted with this woman. If we are going to understand the Bible well, we need to dial up our spidey sense so we notice when those kinds of cultural assumptions impact our reading. I suppose that what Jesus meant when he seems to be calling the Greek woman a dog is a trivial example, but there are others, many others. One that I've been actively working to root out in my reading is our culture's obsession with the individual, the Lone Ranger. That kind of outlook makes me think it's all about me and my relationship with Jesus. When Peter writes that you should seek out good spiritual food so that you will grow into a full experience of salvation, I hear that addressed to me as an individual, that I should sit alone at my farm with my Bible and my good spiritual books and grow into full salvation. No, the you is plural. It's written to a community and inviting that community to grow together into the fullness of their salvation. But I hear it as personal or individual because of my cultural lens. The second thing that is important to remember when we look at a passage that seems strange to us is that Jesus tends to use quite a bit of rhetorical hyperbole. What does that mean? It's a literary technique where an author or speaker intentionally uses exaggeration and overstatement for emphasis. You know, like when your exasperated mum says, if I've told you once, I've told you a million times, don't put your elbows on the table. When Jesus says to his followers, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and throw it away, he's not looking to create a band of one-eyed disciples. Or perhaps a better example would be when he says, if anyone comes to me without hating his father and mother and wife and children, he cannot be a disciple of mine. Wait, what? 
I thought Jesus was all about love. Surely he's not instructing potential followers to hate their families. Of course not. But he is drawing a striking contrast so that they, that they notice and think about his important point, his point about establishing priorities. Jesus is saying that for his disciples, his claim on their lives trumps all others. The point isn't the rhetoric. The point is, well, the point. And here, in the story of the Greek woman, Jesus is not telling her that she is a dog. He's explaining that his kingdom is unfolding in an orderly manner that reflects God's unfailing covenant with Abraham. The Jews have been chosen first so that through them all of the nations of the earth will be blessed. Remarkably, the woman sees past the surface metaphor of dogs and children. She doesn't storm out in a huff because she thinks he's insulting her. Actually, she takes the metaphor a bit further. She points out that the dogs do eventually get fed. In Peterson's translation, she says, But don't dogs under the table get scraps dropped by the children? She may be implying that the children at the table aren't really valuing what has been offered to them, which would be a pretty insightful assessment of how many of the Jews of Jesus' day were dismissing his good news. So we need to understand how our knee-jerk negative reaction to the story comes from bringing our cultural references to it. And we need to appreciate and not get thrown off by the rhetorical device Jesus is using here. A third thing we can do to help us with this passage is to look at the context of the story in the wider text. Just prior to Jesus' encounter with the Greek woman, he has had a bit of a showdown with the Pharisees. They are criticizing him because his disciples are not washing their hands before they eat. It would be nice to think that the Pharisees were very forward-thinking in the area of public health and wanted to ensure that Jesus' disciples weren't going to get some transmissible disease. But I fear that is not what they were thinking. This episode occurs in the ascendancy phase of Jesus' ministry. He has been preaching powerfully, bringing the good news of a new kingdom. In the previous chapter, he has miraculously fed more than 5,000 people. And then afterwards, when the disciples were struggling to row across the sea against a strong headwind, Jesus walked up to them on the water to join them. Those sorts of miracles were getting people's attention, and the Pharisees feared it was eroding their leadership position in the area of righteous living. But instead of rethinking things and considering Jesus' claims, they doubled down on the rules. If Jesus was going to break the rules, they were going to be sure to catch him and call him on it. Jesus responds to their fixation on hand-washing in two ways. He addresses their bad understanding of scripture, and he addresses their bad understanding of biology. In the area of scripture, he points out that they major on the minors. They make a huge deal out of some obscure text or textual interpretation and use it to negate the substance and spirit of the law. 
in another confrontation with the religious leaders, he gets at the scale of the problem. He accuses them of being blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel, which is more rhetorical hyperbole, by the way. In today's incident, the religious folks are totally focused on minor instructions about hand-washing. Enforcing cleanliness rules may appeal to them because those are so easy to police. Sins like lust and jealousy could be argued to be more significant, but can be harder to detect, so the Pharisees stuck with things that are on the surface and can be easily nabbed. Jesus uses the example of how they tell poor people to pay a temple tax when it was money that they needed to use to care for their parents. The Pharisees were ranking ritual temple observance above honoring parents, the fifth of the Ten Commandments, and above the great law to love neighbor. And perhaps the real tragedy of this approach is that the Pharisees seem to have applied it to themselves. In their own religious observance, it was all about the surface, keeping the outer rules rather than tending to their hearts. They didn't need to have listened to Jesus to learn that wasn't what God wanted, though they could have learned it there too. The prophets, whose writings the religious leaders knew well, had already introduced the notion that what God wanted was to renovate their hearts, not their rituals. In fact, Jesus closes this part of his response with a quote from the prophet Isaiah. This people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment of men learned by rote. Jesus' second response to the Pharisees' obsession with superficial purity and regulations about eating is to state the biological facts. What we eat goes into the stomach and not into the heart, and ultimately it ends up in the sewer. The food we eat, kosher or not, with washed hands or not, cannot pollute our lives. He says that what pollutes us are the things that come out of our hearts. Greed, deceptive dealings, carousing, mean looks, slander, arrogance, foolishness. It's harboring those kinds of attitude that pollutes us. The word pollute or defile, or make unclean in other translations, is not a concept we hear often these days. It relates to keeping the Jewish ritual purity codes, and it was important because if you didn't keep those rules, you wouldn't be able to serve or worship in the temple. But Jesus flips the tables. He says the things that actually disqualify us from properly worshiping and serving God are the wounded and reactive places deep within us, places that we defend with anger, slander, arrogance, greedy acquisition, and deception. You can be a Pharisee, check all the tick boxes of external rule-keeping, yet at the same time have a toxic brew of hatred and self-loathing bubbling away inside you. Ironically, it can be a fear of looking messy, that prevents us from digging into that stuff under the surface, into the substance of who we are and who we are to become. 
Yet Jesus is much more concerned with that inner space than with our hand hygiene. Father Richard Rohr writes that if we cannot find a way to make our wounds into sacred wounds, we invariably become cynical, negative, or bitter. If we do not transform our pain, we will most assuredly transmit it, usually to those closest to us. Maintaining a nice, neat exterior is appealing on so many levels. The Pharisees were brilliant at it, but it ultimately comes at great cost. Which for me brings us back to the Greek woman. Once again, her story is one that is sparse in detail, but the fact that Jesus honors her makes me give her the benefit of the doubt. Unlike the Pharisees who thought their rigid law-keeping entitled them to God's favor and prestige with people, this woman comes in humility. Instead of wearing a facade of having it all together, she comes in her neediness. Instead of putting herself in the position of judging Jesus, she addresses him as Lord. Even when she's countering his point, she says, yes, Lord. She acknowledges his authority to decide how things should be. This will be a contrast to Peter, who in the next chapter, when Jesus foretells his crucifixion, says, no, Lord. This woman says, yes, Lord. The earliest proclamation of the gospel by the disciples in Acts is, Jesus is Lord. And this woman has got there. She sees past the metaphor, she sees past the superficial differences of Jew and Greek, male and female, famous and obscure. She sees past religious rules and expectations and discerns the substance of Jesus' message. Probably few of us are at risk of becoming Pharisees, and I doubt that many of you stayed up late last night polishing your shoes so that you could be all shiny when you came to church today. But we are all still at risk of keeping our faith on a surface level. It's an activity. It's what we do on Sunday mornings. It occupies a slice of our life and then gets put back on the shelf. And that surface level protects us from ever having to face the dark corners of our life. But the unnamed woman in today's story invites us to go deep, to be all in, to recognize the transformative power of Jesus' kingdom, a kingdom that welcomes all of us.